Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Tejas Parashar. My guest today is political theorist Paulina Ochoa Espejo. We'll be discussing her new book, On Borders, Territories, Legitimacy, and the Rights of Place, published by Oxford in 2020. Paulina Ochoa Espejo is Professor of Political Science at Haverford College. She works at the intersection of democratic theory and the history of political thought, and she's interested in questions about popular sovereignty and borders. She's written about populism, the boundaries of the demos, immigration and the right to exclude, and the relationship between democracy and territorial rights, as well as questions around the moral relevance of borders and border control. She's also interested in Latin American political thought. Before joining the faculty at Haverford, Paulina was an assistant professor at Yale University, and a Lawrence S. Rockefeller Visiting Fellow at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton. She's been Visiting Professor at CIDE in Mexico City and a Kerry Postdoctoral Fellow at the Erasmus Institute at the University of Notre Dame. She was a member of the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton and a recipient of the ACLS Frederick Burkhardt Fellowship for recently tenured scholars. She is the author, previously, of The Time of Popular Sovereignty, Process and the Democratic State from 2011, and has co-edited the Oxford Handbook of Populism from 2017. Her most recent book, which we'll be discussing today, has been published as On Borders, Territories, Legitimacy, and the Rights of Place. The book asks how and when the borders of states can be justified. Paulina, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Tejas. It's very happy to be here. Great. So first of all, your last book, The Time of Popular Sovereignty, was about the dilemmas of popular authorization and peoplehood in modern democracies. You've also edited and written work on populism since then. What drew you now to a study of national borders and territory? Well, there is an internal question that connects the topic of popular sovereignty and populism, and and that is the people. And that is precisely the question that drew me to borders, because there's a connection there with the boundaries, the boundaries of the people and the boundaries of the state. So in, in when I was dealing with the first book and the dilemmas of democracy and, and and eventually to populism, one of the main things that worried me was who are the people? who count as the people. Of course, there's an internal connection there with immigration that I was very attracted to. Why do people who are present in a territory do not count as as part of the people if they don't have citizenship? Why do we care more about the boundaries of the nation or the boundaries of the demos than the borders of the state? And also I realized that those questions are necessarily connected because if we don't know how to justify the demos or the group of the people who are citizens uh, by reference of to a historical link or an ethnic link, then territory becomes very important. And those were the questions that eventually brought me to the question of borders. So what is the connection between the borders of the state and the boundaries of the people? And all of this was happening at the time in which more and more countries throughout the world were building walls to keep people out. So I was really, really puzzled by why states were building walls. And uh, all of this reminded me of the physical connection that often gets dismissed. We think about borders as always being the boundaries of the nation or the boundaries of the group. But we tend to forget, at least in political theory, that borders are also the physical limits of the territory. 
So I was attracted of, uh, to all of these combinations of questions, and it was precisely the, the previous doubts about the limits of the people that brought me to the, to the boundaries of the state and the physical borders of the territory. And did you find that commentary uh, on populism and on perhaps on popular politics more generally was insufficiently attentive to the importance of physical borders rather than just kind of normative borders around the people? Well, I realized that there is that the connection probably was more um, important than we usually uh, allow it to be. We don't notice that when um, in during electoral uh, periods uh, when candidates use questions of immigration to get more support for their causes or at least to steer xenophobia as it has happened in so many countries, that this is actually connected to issues of territorial rights. So we tend to dismiss that, but the physical connections of the territorial borders um, are actually very important when we think to the to one more issue that will become very very interesting in the, in the coming years, which is that when we think about the people and we think about excluding, we are also thinking about excluding others from natural resources, and this is going to become more important as climate change is also an issue that we're going to have to deal with. So when it came to thinking of territories, I was also worried about the issue of climate change and the environment and the connections that immigration and the environment that are often not obvious. Um, I noticed that they will become much more important as time goes by, and I wanted to dedicate some of my thinking to this connection. So were the particular kinds of problems of the last, say, eight years or so, um, since 2012, 2013, were these really on your mind as you began thinking about this project? Well, of course they were, because it was at the time that I was writing the book. But I actually began to get interested in this in 2006, um, when I was still dealing with questions of populism, because it was at the time that the United States began to build a physical boundaries at the border of states. And I noticed that other countries were beginning to think in terms of physical boundaries. Um, I noticed that a lot of people who thought about the environmental um, connotations of building walls, they tended to think of, I don't know, whether animals will be left out. And I thought that the envir environmental connections were different. There was something about how place relates to institutions that I was really attracted to. But it was in the back burner for many, many years. And it only came back when I, when I saw this connection between populism and issues that have to do with environmental concerns, how populism usually dismisses the environment as being a cosmopolitan concern. And, and that connection, I think, has not been properly theorized. And, and I wanted to deal with the connection between environment, populism, and how institutions and places are connected. Great. So the, the point about uh, the environment brings me uh, to uh, uh, my first question about this, this kind of substance of the book. So in the first half of the book, you discuss at length what you call the desert island model of territorial politics, which often predominates in our thinking about borders. The metaphor of the desert island is one that you take from David Hume, uh, particularly from Hume's Treatise of Human Nature. And I want to discuss the history of this idea in a second. But before that, could you just tell us about what the desert island model of territorial politics is exactly? What, what does it entail? When we think about the territorial borders of the state, we often use a model that we take for granted. I think that we learn it in elementary school when they show us maps and they show us color-coded territories in those maps. And we take it for granted and we often don't think about how um, artificial it is, if you will. We tend to think that is the natural states of things. And we tend to think at, of territories 
um, as the countries in which the world is divided. And these territories are distinct, independent, and a group of people can own them. That is, they, well, in, in the book I call it a subject to ownership. But that's why they remind me of a desert island. Um, I noticed the desert island model, not in Hume, but um, through a contemporary writer of territorial rights, um, Margaret Moore, who notices that there is like this um, thought experiment of the desert island. And when she mentioned it and she published it in her book, I realized that this, this thought experiment of the island appears everywhere. But it's only when, well, when I mean everywhere, it's like so many authors mention something similar. And, and it makes sense because we can't really think of territories as distinct unless we imagine them as separated from their, from their surroundings. And the way they are separated from their surroundings, it's because there's another country that it's bound <laughs> to them in the other direction. But we don't think of these borders as, as being artificial. We tend to think of them as having them, having been there already. So they are as if they were natural, as if countries were like desert islands in an archipelago naturally separated from each other. So is this model uh, a kind of descriptive claim about modern states and modern countries as they've come to exist? Or is there kind of an aspirational quality to it? I mean, it strikes me that this is just uh, physical reality, lived reality belies the kind of claims that this model has. Well, of course it does, right? If you think about it, countries are not separated from each other. They share often... They they share land and they share landscapes and and they share water and they share air, but when we imagine our countries, we imagine them as separate. And when the most important part is that we imagine why is it legitimate to say that this is our country rather than somebody else's? It's because we have this image of a group of people having arrived to a land and done something to the land such that they have a right to live there. Um, but this presupposes a way of thinking, which is that the land was already delimited somehow. Yet this doesn't happen. It's, it's an aspiration. But we, we tend to imagine it as something that has historical origins, right? It's something like the land was there to begin with, and then we arrived as a group, already defined group, and we occupied it as if we were uh, an individual that occupies a plot of land within a country. And, and this analogy between private property and, and territories, it's, it's striking if one thinks about it. The things that we don't usually think about it at all. <laughs> um, I think that even when Hume was using it as an example, he was imagining that that Britain was, or Great Britain was already there, right? Uh, be, which is surprising because, of course, it wasn't just one country; it was several countries. But the the image of the island is, is striking, and and it helps us think through these very very thorny issues. Yeah, I mean the the metaphor of the island also calls to my mind Robinson Crusoe. Um, which is quite literally about finding a desert island and claiming it as one's own. Well, the, the thing is that the desert island model also occurs in other very important literary moments. Uh, so the, the moment of the desert island occurs uh, in The Tempest, as you know well. But this is uh, The Tempest was actually modeled on a semi-historical event, which was the discovery of Bermuda, which... It was indeed a desert island. So that, that tends to be a good example of how we think about it, because um, this is the example, actually, that Margaret Moore uses, because when a group of people arrive to a desert island, it seems to be a legitimate occupation of that piece of land, which is distinct and in the, in, independent. But just as the example of the tempest make, makes clear, it's never so easy, right? There are always 
there's always the fact that the the group that that arrives was already considered as as a nation or as a constituted group. Um, it doesn't work like that unless it's either an individual, as in the case of Robinson Crusoe, who is just one person arriving at an island, or a group that was already constituted before it arrives. Um, the, it's in any case the model. If you think about it, it's it's quite artificial in every respect. And what is striking about it is that it's a, it's helping us to think of of occupation as a natural process. So there's a lot in the book um, about this tension between what we imagine to be natural or normal or expected, and what is uh, artificial and and inauthentic or an imposition. And, and this tension, I think, permeates a lot of our discussions of territorial rights. And how, uh, how did this model or this idea of territorial occupation come to be so dominant? I mean, uh, does it have particular links to intellectual developments in early modern and modern Europe? I mean, one thing I can think of, uh, which you I know you mentioned in the book, is Roman law and the way that that has a certain uh, idea of, of uh, property ownership and, and occupancy um, and how the reinvention and, and rediscovery of Roman law actually may have fueled uh, support for this kind of model. Actually, I do suspect that there is a connection there. Um, I think a lot of our thinking about territorial rights, it's modeled on private property. Um, and, and I think it, a lot of our thinking of private property comes from Roman law. What is striking is that if this was private, private law, it was not um, meant to be thought in terms of constitutional law or civic law. So what, what, what I'm thinking, for example, is in like the Romans tend to imagine that territories were demarcated by water um, simply to, to assume that there were already plots to, to begin thinking about it. Um, and this kind of thinking came through Roman law uh, into medieval into medieval law throughout Europe. So um, in the Middle Ages, there was a lot of thinking of territory also in terms of territories that were already defined by water. So I found this a lot in Spanish uh, medieval law where uh, in, in uh, Alfonso X's um, legal statutes, there's a lot of discussion of the boundaries of territories in terms of, of land bounded by water, which I found really, really striking. There are all these descriptions of islands and of why plots of land are bound by rivers. I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, and I, I imagine that a lot of this uh, kind of thinking was simply because it was easier to delimit plots when you have water to delimit them. And because these were private lands, it made sense to think of them as already demarcated one way or another, as, so as to allow us to solve conflicts between neighbors who owned property that was lying next to each other. Um, what is more striking is that then these became the boundaries of countries, right? And, and this transition is a little odd. Why did the mm, boundaries of plots of land became the boundaries of states? That um, is not as clear as one would like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a strange process that happened in history. Yeah, I mean, it also parallels, I mean, but from the 15th century onwards, at least, or the early 16th century onwards, at least, it also parallels the rise of empires, right? expansive European empires, particularly in the New World. Um, I wonder, I mean, is there a connection there between the the rise of territorial ownership as an idea about how to mark, demarcate uh, borders between countries and First, you know, first Spanish and Portuguese, and then English and Dutch uh, imperial expansion in the New World. 
Of course, historically, I mean, if we if we see it, back, uh, you know, if we project backwards, there is definitely a connection there with colonialism and the expansion of European empires. However, if you were to see it from the other direction, I think that the process by which we took the desert island model uh, was probably not so clear. Um, I think that what is what is obvious is that when we got to the point in in which there was a need to justify ownership of new lands, um, trying to think of these new lands as, as distinct and independent was very important because then one could say, this is ours and that is yours, right? So it was a process similar to demarcating land between neighbors that began to emerge when the European empires wanted to demarcate land between um, imperial neighbors, if you will. So, um, and it all, it's connected to all the discourse about justifying taking land in the Americans. So in the book, I I talk about uh, Francisco de Victoria's lecture on on the American Indians, in in which he tries to explain why there could be a justification for the Spaniards to occupy the, the Americas. And one of the things that really, really struck me was how he thinks that, well, you know, like people could occupy space in between, like, um, you know, Europeans cannot take land that is already occupied by the local peoples, but they should be allowed to live in between the territories that are taken. But one of the things that he uses to justify their presence there is saying like, well, one could fish and one could take things from the commons. But when he talks about taking things, he talks about taking objects, say fishing, taking fish out, or like it's it's a well-defined thing against the water, a fish, or taking perils from the sea. And And that image of the peril, I think, is quite striking because a peril is it's a precise object that one can hold in one's hand, right? And so when one talks about taking pearls out of the sea, it, it makes perfect sense that one could like separate them from its surroundings. But of course, land cannot be separated from its surroundings. So um, what the, the, the act of fishing or just taking something out, um, which would have been innocent in his view, suddenly becomes taking land, just like one would take an island separate from its surroundings and then taking entire territories. Of course, he doesn't make the connections himself, but the connections get made uh, through law um, in the passing of time after um, conquest in the Spanish territories uh, in America. Um, And I, I found that quite striking. Yeah, I mean, is there a conception in either in Vittoria or other Spanish years at the time that uh, there are particular ways of territorial uh, occupation and ownership within European society, and then there are different ways within Native American society or Indian society, as you call them? Um, is there a sense of that difference, or does that just Im- Im- that only emerge later on? I think that in the case of, of Vittoria, it's, it's quite striking that he does not think that there's a different law that applies to the Americans. So, I mean, I mean he, think, he thinks that there could be a taking line by right of discovery. But clearly, in the case of the Americans, those lands had been discovered, right? So, because there were like uh, entire civilizations occupying those places. So, he cannot justify um, taking land. In, in those terms. So um, there is a, a particular line that he talks um, when he says all things that can, that are unoccupied or wild um, can be occupied or taken uh, from, taken away from, from nature. And that is by law of nature and the law of nations, then what is allowed to do that? However, this model would not apply because there's already people there. It, what one can do is take those th- things, as I mentioned before, from the sea or from the rivers because those are not owned by any particular group of people. And, and doing that would have been allowed uh, in Europe, 
But in Europe, <laughs> it would have been only taking things like perhaps taking gold or taking pearls um, from places that are not already occupied and from the water, right? Particularly from the water. But in the Americas, it would have not been justified because uh, those lands were already taken. However, that line of thinking was used later on by subsequent thinkers um, to take land eventually. So I don't cover this in the book, but it became clear in, in, in Spanish Indian law in, in the 17th century that that extrapolation be became a way of taking land. Uh, from those who had owned it before because they did not consider it distinct, whereas the Spaniards did consider it distinct from, from the rest, right? This particular plot of land. So it was a strategy of colonization, but not precisely by Victoria. So that does emerge later, the, the idea that without a sufficiently uh, robust conception of, say, private ownership, a culture loses its right to territorial occupation. Well, that, that was definitely the case. But I mean, in the book, I discuss it through Locke. So, yeah. Yeah, that, but of course, that was not directly um, taken from, from the concepts that Vittoria was using, although probably Locke was reading Spanish uh, Spanish thinkers because of uh, they were at the time the dominant thinkers. Um, of course, he wanted to make a distinction between the Protestant uh, way of of thinking and and the Catholic. But of course, he he probably if had some influence from that prior wave of colonization. So in in the case of of Locke's writings is the ownership and property, which clearly becomes the basis of territorial jurisdiction. But the key here is that who gets to own land is not who those who occupied it first, but those who use it better, right? And and that line of thought, use as the ground of of colonization, was very important uh, once uh, the Anglo American colonization of the Americans has started. So um, what I noticed there also in the Desert Island model line of thinking is that uh, even if you assume that God gave the land in common to all men, here um, you can appropriate it if you use it better. So um, in the same way, you can, you know, take it from others who don't use it as well. <laughs> and... Uh, and that is the mechanism that was used. But uh, what I found really, really um, interesting is that it is people like Locke who begin to imagine the land as distinct, as individual plots of land. Um, and this is not surprising because this is the time in which uh, fencing began to happen. But fencing, of course, is private property. It's not territories, right? Territories are how you establish law, uh, whereas uh, mm, property presupposes that there is already law. So there's always this back and forth between uh, ideas of territory and ideas of property. And in this ambiguity between territory and property, a lot of the abuses take place or the abuses of, of colonial expansion and imperial expansion took place. Mm, that's really interesting. So territory, uh, to some extent at least, maps conceptions of private property onto the state, onto political communities. Well, and yeah. if, if we think about it, like we we tend to imagine that we own, like that a group of people owns this land. And, and that is the reason why it's intuitively easy for people to imagine that others have a right to exclude, um, that a country has a right to exclude migrants or a particular group of people has a right to exclude another group of people and establish territorial borders. Because in both cases, we are thinking as if it were private property. You have a right to exclude others who are not occupying this, the, who are occupying the land. And, and this line of thought, um, I think, emerges from, from this early colonial expansion and, and perhaps it's carried over from that indeterminacy between private 
adopting Roman private law for for legal purposes of establishing the state. And that kind of indeterminacy that happens in the Middle Ages and then during colonial times, uh, I believe, in a way, is still with us today because we tend to think of territorial rights as if they were property rights, even though we know they are perfectly separate because one requires the other uh, in order to be established. Does that... um, That might not be clear enough. Let me just uh, repeat it a little bit. When you think about property, you need there to be somebody who's going to enforce the rights that you have in whatever is it that you own. You know, like your property rights on a thing or a piece of land. You need a law that allows others to recognize that this is yours. So in order to think about private property, you need to have the law first. Whereas territory, it's establishing where the law will apply. (laughs) So if you think about it, first you need territory in order to have private property. However, when we think about territory, we imagine it to be analogous or very similar to property in that there is a thing which is distinct, a plot of land, a space. And we imagine that it's separate from something else. It's not just a great expanse of land that goes from one pole to the other pole. We think that there are like spaces in in America and in Europe. So it's independent from other lands. And we imagine it that it's subject of ownership. That's what I mean by these three things, distinct, independent, and subject to ownership. And so it is, in a way, like private property. But it wouldn't make any sense to have private property because territory establishes it. But this kind of, this line of thought is the one that I believe emerged from thinkers such as Victoria and Locke and, and eventually, I, I claim even Kant uh, is associated with this idea of the desert island model. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I, I think also just historically, um, I don't think that it's coincidental that settler colonial societies have become so preoccupied with their national borders and their territorial integrity. I mean, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United States even. I mean, there does seem to be both... Uh, uh, a link that exists both at the level of rhetoric and at the level of law in in thinking about uh, the frontier and kind of taking up, uh, converting wilderness into individual property and having it protected by law and then having a country's territory protected by law. That's correct. Um, So, I mean, you're thinking thinking in terms of Anglo-American expansion, but of course um, I filter it through through Spanish colonialism. Yeah, that's and, right. And the same would happen with, with Dutch uh, thinking about, about islands, about the sea, and, mm-hmm. and about the land that is taken, I think. And, and so it, exp- it extends to Asia and it extends to Africa as well. Absolutely. And, and so we don't come to the maps um, just by having people who lived in their own countries, right? <laughs> we don't come to that very beautiful co- color-coded map just by, say, people asserting that they lived here since time immemorial and and boundaries are not uh, simply there. And they are part of this complex historical process uh, associated with colonialism and, and the idea that the land where colonies are established is legitimate territory. Right. Now, uh, in contrast to this ownership-based uh, uh, desert island model of territory, in the second half of the book, you, uh, you outline something uh, that you call the topian model. Uh, could you give us a sense of what the topian approach to territory might be? Well, I do distinguish it, um, this, this other approach, but mostly because I noticed that the model has a lot of problems. <laughs> Uh, the the most important of these problems is that it's very, very difficult to make the claims about legitimacy that countries would like to make um, once you begin to dig into the non-naturalness of territories, right? So the, the main problem that comes up 
is that it's very hard to justify why there's a border here rather than somewhere else. Like, why do we have a border um, between Mexico and the United States along the Rio Grande, Rio Bravo? And, you know, like a straight line that in, uh, along Tijuana. They're really, other than usurpation and conquest uh, and just a historical fact, um, there is no good reason. And yet we would like to think that these borders are legitimate. Right. So the way of making them legitimate is to say, well, the rule of law was established in these places. But then to justify that rule of law, eventually these countries will appeal to democracy. And uh, appealing to democracy tends not to be enough because we go back to the problem with which I began, which is to say, who are the people <laughs> in this given land? And that is not an easy question to answer. Like, why the people on this side of the border and not the people on the other side? Um, why, if a brother is born here and the other is on the other side, they do not count as members of the same community? Why people who are so close together are separated by law? Uh, and, and those questions, which seem naive, um, turn out to be quite damaging to all the theories of legitimacy that are, that are based on this desert island model. So parting from these problems, I noticed that there's actually a completely different line of thought when it comes to territory and, and borders. And this line of thought, which I call topian, I think has been neglected. It's a long history of thinking about territory completely different uh, way than those who had thought about territory in terms of private property. And this, I call it topian precisely because it's not utopian. You know, there's uh, all the people who care about this view take a very keen interest in the relationship between place and climate and the geological features or of the regions that they pay attention to and the institutions that arise there. And that relation of place and institutions has also been very, very important in European thought um, since Roman times. But we tend to neglect it when it comes to issues of territorial rights and borders. Um, I, I have some other explanations of why this line of thought was... Uh, um, was uh, ignored, but but for now I just want to recover it, or I want to just point out that it exists. And and some of the thinkers that are associated with this topian view are uh, people like Montesquieu or Rousseau, or even Machiavelli. Um, but also, you know, like you see it among the Greeks, you know, you see it in the Romans, um, and and this simply that there is an influence of climate and, and geological features of societies um, and the institutions that develop there. So the tradition itself is more attentive to place as, as a category, so environmentally, the, the, the kind of very real geographical and environmental place that the people inhabit. That's right. That, that's, the, that's the, I guess it's not a joke, but that's the reason why I call it Topian, right? Utopia is both uh, nowhere and, uh, you know, like it has the two meanings of uh, not being anywhere. And this is, it's about topos. It's about being somewhere. It's about a place. So that is why I call it uh, utopian and topian thinking. So this way of thinking is really concentrated on place and, and the connections, not only to, to a particular space or coordinates in a map, but also to place, to the characteristics of, of the area. So I sometimes think about, you know, it's, it's, it's the connections that happen between people and plants and animals and things that are in a particular area that matter for how the institutions that develop there uh, 
um, arise. Yeah. I was also thinking of some strands of uh, Native American thought, which you mentioned briefly, but, uh, you know, this kind of um, awareness of the role of environment in cultivating uh, a, a people as a category. I, I definitely noticed, and I've since writing the book, I've been dedicating a lot of time and thinking about those connections. It's not only uh, Native American. I actually begin to think that this was the the most widespread way of thinking about about place, and in fact, it is the European that was weird, <laughs> and it's simply imagining that those connections between um, society and and plants, animals, and wind, and the processes that change a given place are crucial for understanding how we live together, for understanding politics, for understanding society. Um, Most societies in the world have thought that those forces matter. In many cases, these forces have been personalized, and they have uh, been anthropomorphized and made into spirits or gods. But in many other occasions, they are simply acknowledged. And I wanted to, in the book, I wanted to highlight that this is not exotic thinking, that this is core European thinking. Uh, We already, we meaning us Europeans, you know, moderns, um, think in those terms already, but we have uh, put that kind of thinking aside. Right. And so what would it mean to recover this kind of tradition now, um, given how dominant the ownership and private property based conception of territory is now? Well, one of the main things that one has to take into consideration is that topian thinkers are very aware of the realist character of their theories. You know, they they are very aware of what are the circumstances that surround their thought? And, and they are also very aware about um, differences between places. So in a way, they're localists and, and they are realist. And also, they pay a lot of attention to principles in relation to the context. So I call this trait context sensitivity of principles. They don't, they don't imagine principles being universal or applying to all humans in every circumstance. Um, they think of principles as important, but as located in, and, and sensitive to particular time and place. So um, these are not necessarily parochial thinkers, Many of them are very aware of other places. However, they know that in every particular place, the the ones that are local are the ones that matter most. So um, those are the main traits that I see in in these thinkers. But they involve all sorts of um, thinkers that we consider central to the Western traditional thought. People like Montesquieu, as I mentioned before, Machiavelli, Rousseau, even Kant, who is so utopian in some other instances, I think that he's also very aware of of the topian parts uh, of the tradition that he uses when he's making normative claims. But uh, recovering this topian tradition uh, wouldn't lead us to reject the concept of borders entirely. I mean, it seems to me um, that it's quite different from, say, the open borders, cosmopolitan, radical cosmopolitan approach of Joseph Cairns or someone like that. I mean, in your attempt to re- recover and, and, and kind of rehabilitate parts of this tradition, you, you'd say that we need to rethink borders, not, not just to reject them. Absolutely. You're right there. So um, the reason why I think that... Um, cosmopolitan thinking is is not what we need, is that it is the most utopian of them all. It really thinks that those distinctions that, that are related to how we relate to the environment are completely irrelevant to making claims about how we should relate to one another. And I, I think that those are actually very important. We can't e- simply imagine that we owe um, to others 
without thinking of the context in which we will owe them something. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I also think in these terms, for example, um, if you were to get rid of all borders, um, if you were to think that there's no distinctions between people, you would still want to have some sort of um, division even if this is just internal jurisdictions to a world state, because it's very hard to govern the whole world at once, right? <laughs> or to apply every single law to every single place at the same time. So if we wanted to have some distinctions between places, uh, jurisdictional zones, I mean, even if it were like one enormous, if the whole world were one enormous country, we would have a we would want to have some distinctions between areas. And how would we establish those? We'd still have the same problem that we have when we are trying to justify borders between countries. Like, why would a border here be better than a border somewhere else? One could say, well, it doesn't matter. We just have a grid. And, and I guess, sure, we just could have a grid to determine things. But then we repeat the same problems that we have when we have arbitrary distinctions between areas that separate um, those who live close to one another. So the justification of those borders will be very hard. And it'll also be very, very hard to explain why we couldn't move from one place to another or, or to justify the differences between one and the other in the case we had open borders. So I do want to keep borders because they do a job um, when it comes to imagining uh, governing anyone legitimately. But I want to think about having these borders in a way that makes sense, um, especially when we're thinking about environmental concerns. So that's why I wanted to recover dystopian thinking. Um, I I also thought <laughs> almost as almost from, from as a curiosity, I thought that it was very, very interesting to see that we have completely ignored um, that connection between thinking um, in terms of the environment and, and institutions. We have rejected it or forgotten about it. And if we are to think about the environment seriously, as we must now, then the connections between water and air and rocks and and how they change uh, have to be taken into consideration when we think about how to govern. Right. So I wanted to just address the question of the environment in, in one second. But before that, um, something I, I uh, wanted to just bring up is um, it does strike me that defining national belonging according to the topian approach, so by environment, by uh, the, recognizing the importance of place, is very different from defining national belonging according to any established national uh, ethno-nationalist or racial criteria, which seems to be the language through which we continue to see, to see borders. Well, I mean, I, in, in the book, I say that I am against uh, identity versions of of legitimating territory. And by that, I mean that you first define which is the group that owns a place, and then you think uh, how that group is connected to the place in question. Um, the reason why I don't like it is that trying to define a group in advance, it's extremely difficult <laughs> if you don't assume that all those people are already in a territory. You know, like if you imagine that we have some lineage, that there is some family lines, these are almost impossible to prove, right? And, and there is no trait that we have that would tell us that we belong to the same ethnic group other than actually showing our passport. <laughs> There's nothing that, there are no racial or family or true ethnic connections that connect any national group. So um, showing your passport is the one way to define it. Then, well, we are going to the idea that there is a country that defines the group, right? And it's not that the people define the country, but it is actually the country that define 
those who belong to the country by saying those who are here. But what is the here? Here is that place where that group lives. So there seems to be a circular connection there between people and territory in that we use the territory to define the people that matters, but we seem to use the people that matters to claim that that territory is legitimate. And that circularity, which I was referring to before, really makes it almost wrong to claim legitimacy on the basis of identity. So I don't have anything against national groups. I think that people share cultures and those are fantastic. And it is very good to have a a group that shares your way of looking at the world and being together. Just like it's wonderful to have a family or to belong to other membership communities. Um, And I think that all those groups are very important for human life. However, I just don't think that we can use those to define territorial rights. Um, And if we try to do it, it often ends up in horrible things like concentration camps at the borders of states uh, or terrible, you know, genocidal violence. So um, it just seems that it's not a good idea to use identity to define territorial rights and borders. Right. Um, and now, so just to go back to the, the question of climate change, which we also discussed briefly at the beginning, how might the Topian approach to, to territory and borders respond to the particular kinds of challenges that climate change is going to bring, is already bringing? Um, I mean, of course, there are continuities between the problem of uh, climate uh, change and the problem of migration. We can think of climate refugees, for instance, but it also has its own distinct set of challenges. Um, and so uh, I was wondering if you could say a few words about uh, how um, what will become probably the biggest issue of our lives yes. for the next 25 years, <laughs> how the Topian approach is going to, you, you see the Topian approach is responding to that. Well, for one, we can't really divide the, the, the problem of climate between given territories, even though countries are trying hard, right? I mean... We would, it would be fantastic to think that we can keep the problem at bay by just keeping climate refugees out and dealing with our own problems. In European countries, and well, in fact, every country seems to be fantasizing that they can do this. We can keep migrants out and we can, you know, manage our own problems. But obviously, I mean, not only are fires and winds and water not something that you can separate from from the rest of the world, but simply trying to deal with climate it's or, or with temperature. This is obviously a, a planetary issue, right? <laughs> it cannot be divided into territories. So given that it cannot be divided, how are we going to deal with it such that countries or like who that claim territorial rights can somehow establish um, a a way of dealing with their own problems um, because they are the ones that they have jurisdiction over and at the same time share the difficulties. And I thought that the the Topian tradition has a lot to inform and and a lot to inspire. And and using these connections, I came up with this idea of the watershed model of territorial rights. Because um, watersheds, just like um, the problems that we are dealing with, are connected and yet separate. And and they, they are a way of thinking of a problem or not necessarily a problem, an issue that is connected all over the world, water, water circulates all over, and yet it has internal distinctions and separations that allow us to think of different areas of the world. So I use the metaphor of the watershed to think about how to establish borders while at the same time sharing the problems of of a shared uh, planet, a shared earth. Right. So, so the the idea, the very idea of sharing, is 
important and it unsettles the territorial uh, uh, conception or the ownership-based conception of territory quite a bit. For sure. So that's one of the main concerns that I have is how to do something that um, is cosmopolitan to some degree, Mm. but at the same time, I mean, it's not cosmopolitan because it's not just... uh, homogenous to humans. It's more than cosmopolitan. It's, it's planetary. It's something that that humans and 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 all of the other creatures and things um, share, which is you know those processes that extend throughout the the world and or the earth to be more precise. Yeah, I like the term planetary a lot. I think it, it um, and it's not a term that we see a lot in discussions of uh, whether theoretical or otherwise in discussions of migration of borders, right? I mean, it, it often I, I feel like the debate gets reduced to a humanitarian issue almost. It's about what we owe to migrants as people, but the idea that what you're bringing out that we also owe uh, what we owe to the environment as it were and, and you know as inhabitants of a planet and not just as citizens of particular countries that's right so i, I actually take that term from william Connolly and bruno latour uh, i imagine uh, why well, i you know i imagine that they are related in in the way they imagine um the world not as as a human world but as a planet and also how we imagine the planet as made of of connected processes and 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 fluxes not just uh, things right right yeah very interesting and finally uh, what are you working on now for your next project after this book are you continuing to develop any of these themes further well, I, I I recently presented uh, this book, and and some of the critics said, like, well, I think that now you can begin writing the book that you said you were going to write, <laughs> <laughs> because there's so many uh, there's so many things that I hint at in the book, and I don't fully develop. So I, I, it is true that the watershed model, even though I spend a lot of time talking about watersheds and about you know, the whole third part of the book is dedicated to current problems. And, and you know, I talk about the, the grounds of border control and international problems and immigration and how to share ecosystems and, and what is wrong with border walls. But I really don't fully develop the idea of territorial rights. I, I mostly talk about borders. So if I... I I have been thinking more about how can we think about territorial rights in terms of of watersheds. So I think that historically people have thought about in terms of private property, as I mentioned before, and in terms of collective property and in terms of common property. Um, but a lot of people have also thought in terms of of more utopian concerns. So I've been very interested in looking at how um, how people within this tradition, the utopian tradition, and also other traditions of thought, imagine being connected to, to their places. So um, I've been thinking about villages and, and villages in different places, how, how we imagine a village as a subject of territorial rights and how we connect this to the watershed. So um, I don't know exactly where it's going to take me, but I'm hoping that this idea of villages, particularly villages in Mexico, the imagination of pueblos, it might take me as, uh, to a place where I can be more precise about my watershed model. Hmm. That's great. I mean, you do have some discussion in the book, which I found very intriguing about how there was collective use of water in, in Mexican villages and um, how that might provide a model. I, 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 I was quite curious about that. Um, see, the thing is that there are different ways of imagining those institutions, right? So a, a lot of people have inst- imagined them in terms of property, which makes sense. Um, but other people imagine, you know, collective property or, or public property, but property. While others have imagined it in terms of of the relations that you establish with the water. And and those, I mean, those might be, um, let's say, they may date back to 
to a pre-Hispanic uh, way of thinking about land, but they may be very, very new as well. You know, it, it may be that we are inventing them as we speak. And, and that, I think, is very promising as well. I mean, I'm not, I'm not invested in authenticity. You know, I'm, I'm interested in things working yeah. <laughs> and in solutions to the problems that we have. Right. Great. Well, very much looking forward to that project. And thank you so much for joining us, uh, Paulina. This, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dejas.